0: The sermon text uh, for this morning is Joshua chapter 10, as we continue working our way through uh, this wonderful book, This wonderful book that describes how God fulfilled his promises to Abraham uh, by blessing him with the land of Canaan and with numerous descendants, with a big family. In the book of Joshua, we know uh, records how Israel conquered the promised land And and so far in Joshua, we've noted how the people in the land, the Canaanites, were fearful of the um, coming conquest. They knew that, that God had given Israel the land and that God was fighting for Israel. They were aware that the one true God was on Israel's side. And some of those people in Canaan who were aware of of Israel's coming conquest and of the Lord's presence with his people, Uh, some of those in Canaan responded in faith at this reality. Uh, For example, Rahab and her family responded in faith. You remember that uh, Rahab lived in Jericho, the first city in the promised land that Israel had to invade. And when the spies went in to spy on the city, We read that Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, He is God in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. A wonderful profession of faith that came out of this Canaanite uh, prostitute, uh, Rahab. Some responded in faith, like her. But others, we know, remained hard-hearted toward God. They refused to bow the knee. They refused to believe. And that is why it was right for God to command Israel to devote the people of the land To destruction. Because the people living in Canaan lived in open opposition to God. God had been patient with them for centuries. But when we read that their iniquity was complete, the judgment that He brought on those living in Canaan was judgment for sin, and it was a just judgment. Had they repented, had they repented like Rahab did, they would have been saved and they would have been spared. From that judgment, we know that God is gracious to all of those who come to Him in faith, as Rahab did. And so, some in Canaan responded in faith; others remained hard-hearted. And we read that uh, others responded with deception. The Gibeonites, the Gibeonites, who are people in the land, they realized that this force that was coming at them, this force that was Israel. And, and the God who uh, fought for them, the Gibeonites tricked Israel into making a peace treaty with them, into making a covenant with them. You recall in Joshua chapter nine how it's described that the Gibeonites uh, dis- disguised themselves to uh, look like they were from a faraway land. It's almost like something out of a movie. Right? They they had come from somewhere outside of the Promised Land. They pretended, and they came to Joshua seeking to make a covenant. It's interesting that the Gibeonites seemed to know that God had forbidden Israel to make covenants with the people who lived inside the land of Canaan, but not with those who lived outside the land. And So uh, this is why the Gibeonites came to them and and deceived them, saying that they were from a distant country, and then they showed all the evidence for it. You recall the dry bread and the worn-out clothes and the sandals and, and, and so on. And it worked. We read in Joshua 9, it worked because Joshua and the leaders of Israel failed to ask counsel of the Lord. We read in Joshua 9, 15, And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Well, after the deception was uncovered, Joshua agreed to keep the covenant with the Gibeonites, and he made them servants in the tabernacle. We read that their task would be to provide wood to keep the altar fires going and to provide water for the wash basins and for the ritual washings. And so you would think that the Gibeonites' troubles were over. Uh, They had made peace with Israel. Uh, They were spared judgment by God the judgment that God was bringing on the nations around them, it seems like, you know, from that point on, everything really should have been easy for uh, the Gibeonites. But that wasn't the case. The Gibeonites learned several lessons about God that every true believer has to learn. They learned that, and we learned, that the Christian life begins when we enter into a covenant with God through Jesus Christ. It begins there where we know that Christ has taken our judgment upon himself and that he gives us his righteousness and he gives us all the blessings that flow from our relationship with him. But the Christian life does not end there. But it simply is the beginning of a long obedience in the same direction. As Christians, we learn a three lessons about the Christian life as we see what the Gibeonites faced. We learn... First of all, that when we live in covenant with God, when we live in covenant with God, we need to expect opposition. We need to expect opposition. Uh, let us read the first five verses of Joshua chapter 10. And notice as I read how the nations around Gibeon reacted when they found out that the Gibeonites had entered into a peace treaty with Israel. As soon as Adonai king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had de- devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies, and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. We see that while the Gibeonites lived in peace with Israel and with God, they faced opposition from the nations around them. They faced opposition from those who were hard-hearted toward God and his ways. And, You know, loved ones, this really is a picture of the Christian life. Because as Christians, we face opposition. We face opposition, we read in Scripture, from the world. We face opposition from non Christians who are opposed to God and to his ways. Jesus said this very thing to his disciples in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. He said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now the word world here means uh, the secular, unbelieving spirit of the age. And we can feel it, can't we? We can feel how our faith is mocked in our culture and how Christ is opposed, and, and, and the gospel is opposed, and the church is opposed. Uh, we see it uh, daily. We face opposition from the world. We also face opposition from our flesh as Christians. We face opposition from the remnants of sin that remain in us that we have to fight against. And the good news of the gospel is that in Christ we are no longer under the dominion of sin. It no longer has rule, reign over us as believers. Christ has set us free from slavery to sin. But the Bible also teaches us that the remnants of sin remain in us and we have to wage war against the remnants of sin as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. We face opposition from the world, the flesh, and also from the devil. The Apostle Paul uh, describes this opposition in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where he writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so, loved ones, we shouldn't be surprised by opposition because God tells us in his word that we should expect opposition if we are truly living for him, if we are truly living in covenant with him. And so we we shouldn't interpret the opposition we face and the difficulties and the trials in life. We shouldn't interpret these things as, as something strange or as a result of God's displeasure with us. This is actually how God designed the normal Christian life. We read in First Peter chapter four, Peter talks about the trials that come to every Christian. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter says, don't be surprised, but be encouraged. That God is working through the trials and the tests and the difficulties that you are undergoing. He's working in your life to refine your faith, to purify your faith, and ultimately to strengthen you in your faith. In fact, loved ones, there are several benefits that we gain from the opposition that we face as Christians. Several benefits. Firstly, opposition reminds us about what's important, opposition has a way of of focusing our attention on what is important in life. You know, when, when life is easy, we tend to forget about God and we tend to forget about the priorities of his kingdom. But opposition causes us to refocus on the Lord because we are reminded of our dependence upon him moment by moment. Experiencing opposition also brings greater unity to Christ's church, to our church. It's amazing to see how the persecution of the apostles and the early church uh, faced, the opposition and the persecution that they faced, how it caused them to have greater unity, not less unity. It actually caused them to band together and to have greater fellowship. It caused them to see that they were together, united in Christ as a family, and therefore they were brought together by the unity created by the Spirit. In opposition... Also helps us grow in our faith. You know, trials and difficulties in life bring about spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. I read uh, recently about a, a project called Biosphere 2 in Arizona, which was a, a covered dome that was built to study our planet's living organisms. It was a completely enclosed dome. You can think of something like a giant greenhouse. And inside the huge biosphere, they planted all kinds of trees. And uh, these trees actually grew faster than the trees when they were planted um, in nature, in in the outdoor atmosphere. But as these trees grew faster, uh, they began to uh, fall over suddenly. And uh, the scientists couldn't figure out why until They realized that there was no wind in the biosphere. See, in in nature, a wind causes trees to move and to to sway. And that wind, that, that stress, helps them strengthen their root systems. It actually strengthens the structure of the tree. Trees need to experience stress in order to mature properly. The Christian life is similar. In some ways, and that opposition helps us mature. Right? God uses it to mature us, to grow us, to cause our roots to grow deeper in our faith and thereby to be strengthened. The fiery trials that God brings into our lives are meant to refine our faith, not to destroy us, not to cause us to lose faith. They are meant to burn away the dross, and the dross is the impurities that form on the surface of molten metal, and to expose, therefore, the gold that God has granted us by his Spirit. This, this all takes place by the grace of God according to his will. And so, in the Christian life, we should expect opposition. But secondly, we should also find comfort in our covenant relationship with God. We should find comfort in our covenant relationship with God. We read about how the Gibeonites reacted when the nations around them launched their attack. Beginning of verse 6 and following of Joshua chapter 10. And the men of Gibeon uh, sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of ascent of Beth-Horon and struck them as far as Hazekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth-Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azica, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And what did the Gibeonites do? When they were attacked, they went to Joshua and they pled on the basis of the covenant that they had made with Israel. And part of of the covenant relationship involved Israel's protection over the Gibeonites if they were to be attacked by another nation. You know, the same thing happens in the world today. Uh, Smaller nations often make treaties with uh, larger nations nations in order to be protected if that smaller nation is invaded or acted against. And, you know, the question was, in the Gibeans' minds, was would Israel honor the covenant? Would the Israelites actually fight for the Gibeonites? In fact, that phrase, uh, don't relax your hand from your servants, means something like, please don't abandon us. Help us. We are Desperate, And what the Gibeonites learned that day is the comfort and the assurance that can be found in covenant because Israel came to their aid just as they promised. Friends, uh, do you know the comfort and, and the assurance that you can find in knowing and understanding that you are in a gracious covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Do you know the wonderful comfort and assurance that comes in that relationship? He promised to never leave us nor forsake us because he is our God and we are his people. We are in covenant with him. And God, knowing that we are weak and that we struggle with doubt, he has, in this covenant, he has given us physical, tangible signs to show us that he is with us in Christ. He has given us the Lord's Supper and baptism, these two uh, sacraments to remind us consistently of the covenant that we have with God through Christ. In fact, in our worship, we are regularly reminded that he is faithful to his covenant, that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed because he loves us and because he cares for us. And the waters of, of baptism, they reveal that, yes, we are washed and cleansed of our sins and, and by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we are made new. And this covenant is, is the way that God wants us to see our relationship with him, that when we look on the signs and seals that we are reminded that our relationship with God is not based on how we feel, not based on our performance, but it's based on his covenant with us in Christ, and on Christ's performance in that covenant, which was perfect. See, this covenant is the way that God wants us to see our relationship with him. So often we base our relationship with God on how we feel. Loved ones, the problem with that, and we know this, the problem with that is that our feelings are unreliable. That if we're happy and things are going well, it's easy to say that Yeah, I know God loves me. Things are going great. But then when we're sad and struggling, it's more difficult because our feelings are unreliable. Loved ones, our relationship with God is not based on our feelings, but it's based on the covenant we have with God through Christ. See, God has willingly bound himself to us, and he assures us that he is our Father, that Christ is our brother, that the Spirit is our advocate And this relationship is the most reliable thing in all of creation. You confess it every Sunday that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, the promise of God, that covenant promise endures forever. And so in the Christian life, we should expect opposition. We should find comfort in our covenant relationship with God through Christ and Thirdly, we must learn to believe in God's power. We must learn to believe in God's power. We read Joshua 10, verses 12 through 15. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. We see that the description of this victory, this victory of Israel, is focused primarily on how God gave Israel the victory. Notice verse 14. It's described that God fought for his people. Just as he had fought against the Egyptians in the Exodus account, and just as he had caused the walls of Jericho to fall, God for his people against those who opposed him. When we read that, that small detail, even there in verse 11, that the hailstones that God caused to fall upon Israel's enemies, that there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword, pointing again to God's victory over his enemies that God was bringing judgment on those who opposed him. Now in the midst of this great victory, we also read that God prolonged the daytime in order to allow Israel to complete the victory, to win the war. And you know, so much has been written about this miracle. So many questions have been asked, how could God stop the sun and the moon? especially what we understand now about our solar system and galaxies and how they operate. The question is, how could God stop the sun and the moon? If he did that, it would throw the whole solar system into a chaos. Every molecule would be affected. Gravity itself would be thrown into chaos. How could God do something like this? Is it even possible? Loved ones, the scriptures point to the power of our God, the glory of our God, and being able to accomplish even Something like this. I'm going to read Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, to remind us of the glory of God as it is evidenced in his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice... Goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the earth, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You know, in speaking about the miracles recorded in Scripture, a well-known presbyterian scholar named B.B. Warfield he said that christianity is nothing other than unembarrassed supernaturalism unembarrassed supernaturalism and when we read the scriptures we read about god's power and god's might in creation we read about god's power and his might in the incarnation of christ and in his resurrection and ascension, we read about God's supernatural power in every area of our lives, especially in the area of our regeneration. That just as God created all things from nothing, he has created in our hearts faith. He has caused us to be born again, new creation. That the same power by which he created all things, the sun and the moon and all that we see, he has recreated us. He has granted us regeneration. Loved ones, we are a new creation in Christ. And as his people who are in covenant with him, he has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Grant us, we pray, to trust in your power and in your love for us. Thank you for your tender mercies and for your consistent care for us. It's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray.